Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap show brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. So, uh, so what's up, Devlin? Not a lot's going on with me. I think that the most exciting thing that I've been up to recently was that I took my husky on a, a streetcar trip to the pet store for a new leash and collar combo. She inexplicably loves public transit, so it's always an adventure with her. It's nice that she's a good socialist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that about her. <laughs> So uh, is there a song from this episode that we should pick? Yeah, there's one. Um, I feel like I know what you're going to say. Do you think so? Yeah, but you should say it. In case I'm do, you know, <laughs> do you know that I'm going to say it's a song that they play out in the desert, the Knight Rider theme song? So do you remember at the end of season two, at the very end after the credits even, uh, there was a quick scene with Leon? I do, because I was so excited to see Leon and Trenton and Mobley. You mean uh, Frederick and Tanya? Yes, sorry, Frederick and Tanya, which is the name of the episode this week, right? Yeah. I don't know why, but at that time, I thought that all of them getting together could only be a good thing. It seems like that might not be the case, though. I also thought it was a positive at the time. I must say this whole episode... You know uh, that episode of The Simpsons where Bart falls in love with his babysitter? Yes. But of course she rejects him because she's 10 years older. And you know where she rips his heart out of his chest and says, well, you won't be needing this anymore. That's, I feel like this whole episode is like that for me. Yeah. We were talking about how there weren't that many like secrets or Easter eggs in this episode offline. And I think that's basically because this episode is just like sadness extract. Like there's not really much else involved. It's so sad. And of course, I could only emote through The Simpsons because it's just like, you know, when Ralph has his heart broken by Lisa and they're like, oh, you can pinpoint the exact second when his heart breaks in two. It's horrible. I remember you used to reference that on in, in the show. So Leon's here. He's talking about Fraser. What's going on here? So Leon has the two of them, Trenton and Mobley, captive. I think they're wearing handcuffs. And when we first come upon them, there's a man lying on the floor and he's got his throat slit. He's dead, dead. Bit of a grim scene, especially because we find out that this is one of Mobley's friends. We also know Leon's a little bit handy with the knife. So, you know, it's uh, it's not looking good. And Leon, though, because he's the most chill character in this whole universe, it's just chit-chatting about sitcoms. <laughs> so I, I know that I still haven't been able to convince you to watch Seinfeld, but you did watch Frasier, right? I did watch Frasier. Were you a fan? I was a fan. I was a fan, too. And I think that uh, I really liked that show, but I like Seinfeld even more. So all the more reason for you to watch it, I think. I find it really interesting that um, Leon finds Frasier unbelievable and says it turns him off sitcoms entirely. So we switched over to dramas, and in particular, and this comes back to the the song that we chose at the beginning, Knight Rider, which he says um, predicted our current dependence on technology. Our producer, Dave, was making fun of us for not having seen Knight Rider, or actually like even knowing what Knight Rider was to begin with. So maybe I shouldn't give you too much of a hard time for not watching Seinfeld. It's funny. I feel like I don't know how I missed Knight Rider. Uh, it came out in the 80s. And when I looked it up, which I had to do, uh, I, I learned that Knight Rider usually depicts average citizens or ethical heads of corporations. This is from Wikipedia. That's why it sounds so pedantic. You sound like Siri. 
<laughs> oh man, maybe that could be my next career, being <laughs> the voice of a, an electronic assistant. Um, or ethical heads of corporations being bullied into subservience to an overbearing or ruthless criminal organization. Huh. Huh. I wonder I wonder why it's featured here. Yeah, that seems kind of like it's uh, hitting you over the head with symbolism once you know that. And so what I like about this episode, though, is we do have some moments where we really get some relief where you kind of get to enjoy the characters in spite of the sadness and brutality. That's interesting. To me, it just felt like sadness and brutality. Yes, yes. On second watch, I found some moments of relief, but <laughs> the first time I watched it, just sadness and brutality. So let's move into Elliot's storyline to start us off. So it picks up right where the last episode leaves off. So he's standing on the street learning of the explosions that have occurred at the 71 E-Corp facilities. And given his intense reaction to that, he decides to have an emergency appointment with Krista. Yeah, he heads to her home office. Luckily, she was available. I know. I thought that would that would never happen in the the real world, but I'm <laughs> I'm glad that it works out in this case. He's having a very difficult time. I think he's having a panic attack. He's having a hard time even speaking. And they do some really cool camera work here. Actually, they're kind of following him as he kind of paces around the office. Did you think that the camera work was similar to the Darlene panic attack scene? I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I was asking just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it had a parallel that I could refer to, but I, I don't have one. Um, and then, you know, slowly, um, as producer Dave uh, taught us about bit crushing, um, they kind of bit crush his voice out and Mr. Robot is present. And Krista thinks that Elliot's goal was really ultimately to deliver Mr. Robot to her for a conversation. Yeah. Mr. Robot, though, notes that he would prefer just to have a more direct relationship with Elliot. Krista says that Elliot doesn't seem to be interested in that, but maybe she can help them to understand each other in a better way. And so I guess really the internet dialogue, like the text chat they had in the last episode, that's the first time they've communicated even semi-directly for a number of months, right? Hey, good point. Uh, Mr. Robot is very agitated, of course, because he's just found out that he's also been played. Mm -hmm. And he also is afraid that he's going to uh, be like the fall guy for this operation. Absolutely. So he kind of talks about the goals, you know, where they were trying to give power back to all the people who always get shit on. But now he's been manipulated into, I think he views it as now upholding that power structure. And so everything is corrupted. And maybe he's going to, as you said, take the fall. Yeah. So he reveals his involvement in all of these attacks that have been happening over the past year. And Krista is sort of skeptical. I don't think she buys it. I mean, she says it sounds like delusions of grandeur, like Tyrell Wellick works for you. Come on. Well, do you remember when Darlene confessed to that pickpocket on the subway and I said she probably just sounded like some random crazy person? This is probably exactly what Chris is thinking as well. <laughs> well, and this isn't the first time in this show where they've kind of used that Cassandra complex plot or storytelling device where, you know, there's a character who tells the truth, but nobody can believe them. So, you know, he tells her everything, but at least at this point, she's not convinced. He sort of spells it out to her by explaining that Elliot had worked at All Safe at the time the 5-9 attack went down. And he also says that Elliot is just completely crazy. So it's not so far out of belief that he could have pulled this off. So here we are with another F Society video. I want to say it's the eighth one, but I also realize that it's like bros in the series where I've numbered them, but I like lose track and <laughs> double count them. So, uh, you know, there have been a series of F Society videos and there's a new one. Yeah, so this is video one. Video one. Uh, where they say, good people of Earth, there's more up our sleeves. 
they also say that the recent attack, the most lethal um, of all their attacks, the only one that's actually physically hurt people and not currency or property, uh, is only a parlor trick. And their true act of sorcery is going to happen in the next 24 hours. Very ominous. Very ominous. They also say in this, the clock is ticking. I remember clocks, of course, have a continued significance in this show. Absolutely. So this video is being played by Dom and Santiago with Tyrell's lawyer. Yes. And so remember last episode, I said I wasn't sure if Tyrell was off script and trying to sabotage Dark Army or if he was still compliant. So now I believe he is being compliant because he's got a long story that I think serves their purposes about how he's been held captive in that basement for the last five months. You know, these terrorists have threatened his wife and son. But if the FBI looks out for him, he is prepared to name the two people responsible for five nine for starting it and also give their location at this point we do not know who he's going to point the finger at we also learn he's been fully cleared of the murder of sharon knowles that's an important piece here too so this is really the only potential legal or, or criminal justice system uh, hurdle that's left for tyrell that's cool i guess joanna actually had some purpose this season well, it's interesting. I actually read something, and I, and I apologize that I can't remember the source, about how there is kind of a trope where a woman character dies just to advance the storyline of a man exactly character. That's called, it's called, I think it's like Women in the Fridge or Women in the Freezer. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I feel a bit sad in a way that I think she was reduced to that. And actually, that goes along with, I really, I feel like they set up these strong and excellent women characters, and then this season have not made good use of them. Yeah, I hope that Dom still has something something planned. I got a good feeling about Dom. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, Dom uh, is kind of feisty with the lawyer. She says, we don't call it coincidence. We call that bullshit. <laughs> I love how she's kind of just like calling all the shots in this meeting. I know she's really taking the lead. And I don't know if that's out of desperation or she's just frustrated with how you know disingenuous it all seems. But remember, too, the other person who doesn't believe in coincidences is White Rose. Good point. I get the impression that she's, like, equal parts frustrated and, um, like, probably feeling a little defeated at this point. Because uh, we find out that Santiago, right after this, is kind of getting back to his usual antics of belittling her and kind of trying to obstruct her in every way. Because the next scene is just a private conversation between the two of them. And Dom is really questioning, I think, his judgment and his leadership. And, of course... This is a really good use of dramatic irony because all of the audience knows that she's absolutely right to be doing so. Um, and Santiago kind of pushes her. He puts her back in her place, right? He, you know, calls on the chain of command and tells her that she better start remembering who she reports to around there. You know, uh, earlier in the scene when they were still talking to the lawyer and the lawyer floats the idea of the um, immunity deal. Dom says that instead of that, they'll, they'll just charge them with what they were planning to, but throw on obstruction of justice as well. Um, that's basically what Santiago is doing here. And I, I think I noticed that when she says those words, Santiago kind of like turns and looks at her like he's thinking about something. Oh, interesting. All right. So let's see what is happening to Angela in the aftermath of, of this. So Angela is broken. That like seems like a bit of an understatement. Yeah, like something inside her is just like completely collapsed because she's just watching the news. She's just glued to her television set and monitoring the death count. And Darlene is with her. They're at Angela's apartment. 
And she keeps saying these totally nonsensical things like they're going to be okay, right? Like all the people who died, they're going to be all right. And Darlene, who is used to dealing with people who are experiencing paranoid delusions and things like that, um, has no idea what to say. I think she just tells her to like stay in place. She's going to get her stuff and come back and take care of her. Do you think that she peaced out because she was so creeped out? (laughs) I don't know. Or also because Darlene's plan is a bit unclear to me at this moment. I don't know where her stuff is, I guess, at the safe house. Good question. Like, I'm also kind of surprised that... I'm surprised that she reacted this way to the attack that she tried to stop. Because she doesn't really seem that perceived by it, to be honest. Is it perturbed? What's the word? Perturbed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting because I think Darlene, for as hard as her exterior can be, kind of reflexively goes into this caretaker mode. And so now I think she's just really focused on taking care of Angela. But also remember, she's trying to learn what Angela knows. So I don't know how, I don't know what blend of things might be going on. But Darlene, you know, is going to stay with Angela for now. So here we have another phone call from Santiago to his mom. He had given her advanced warning about the attack that was coming up to make sure that she was at home safe and sound. And now she's calling back and, and kind of in response to this attack that's gone down. This is kind of interesting. I do find these attempts to humanize Santiago sort of give that character some depth because otherwise he's just kind of a jerk. Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel. So I don't know how well this plan to humanize him is is working. (laughs) Maybe he could use some image rehabilitation. Maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe this (laughs) is crisis management. Um, His mom's obviously quite ill. He refers to some treatments that she has left because right now she's afraid to leave her house. He tells her not to be afraid of the video. So I guess the F Society video has been broadcast publicly and widely. So this is something that, you know, average citizens know about. He does say that they caught the guy and she shouldn't be afraid. We do learn in this conversation that the media has named the Red Wheelbarrow as the site where Tyrell was discovered or was being held captive and that he has identified two suspects and they've been confirmed by Nuri. So now I suppose we see the use of that character. Remember him? He was the guy that captured all sweaty in his apartment, claiming that his leader was F Society. Yeah, sweaty dude one. Sweaty dude one. That's one That's one sequence I've not misnumbered yet. <laughs> no, he was eating something funny, and that's why I called him at the time. Wasn't it? It was. It was like Fruity Pebbles. It was Fruity Pebbles, totally. Or Fruit Loops. Like it was like kid cereal, you know? So now we know Tyrell's given up some information. Let's go over to the Tyrell story for a minute. Yeah, he's currently being interrogated by uh, a different FBI agent, and he's asking to see his family. So the agent goes into Santiago, because, of course, they they know his wife's dead. They've kind of tried to prevent this information from getting to him, though. And it is about to be revealed to him in a swift and brutal fashion. Yeah, you could say that, because Santiago goes into the interrogation room, turns off the camera, and then kind of just, like, digs into him. Now, of course, Tyrell will remember Santiago from when he blew that cop away to keep him from being apprehended the first time he was caught by police. So this is really Santiago's only moment to make sure that he can keep that secret and keep Tyrell on script. So he basically threatens Tyrell with his child's safety, saying that he needs to continue to follow the scripts. It's pretty brutal. So he just lays it on him that his wife's been dead for two weeks. So now also, though, Tyrell knows that Irving has been lying to him and everyone around him has been keeping that secret, which I like because I wonder what that will do to his loyalty. He does threaten his kids in foster care. So he makes some pretty menacing threats about what might happen to him in that environment. 
uh, and Tyrell just, well, he really Tyrells it. <laughs> That's a great way to use that expression. I wish more people got the reference because I think we see people Tyrelling it all the time. But, you know, uh, he just, he falls apart. Pretty good acting, though, I thought. It's kind of hard to nail a performance like that, I think. Like, sometimes people end up looking a little ridiculous. Well, especially, I think, the emotion of grief, because it takes so many forms. And I think it's very hard to act that out. But I think the way um, Martin Wallstrom uh, does that scene is excellent. Agreed. I really think that this scene is starting to telegraph that Santiago is going to get it. Do you agree with me? Oh, why do you say that? I think that this is kind of like uh, culminating his character depth. You know what I mean? Because does he kind of outrun his usefulness? I mean, his cover's blown. Well, what I think is that like they're portraying him as such an evil character because they're going to kill him later and they want it to be more satisfying. Ooh, it will be satisfying. Yeah, like that's what we're all hoping for at this point. <laughs> So let's go back to see what's happening to uh, our friends Frederick and Tanya. You know how I've been saying, well, I, I think that I'm reaching a lot when I say that show makes Breaking Bad references, but I was definitely getting some real Breaking Bad vibes from these scenes out in the desert. Because, of course, in that show, that's kind of where they take you whenever you want to be, uh, be anonymous. Oh, interesting. Is that also where they uh, bury the bodies? Sort of. Normally, they dissolve them in acid. Oh, wow. Producer Dave is nodding. Yeah, I, I see some nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think he just likes spraying bodies. <laughs> so it's Trenton and Mobley are, they're like chained up in the back seat and the body of their roommate is in the trunk. Favorite body stashing spot in this show. Hey, good point. Another parallel. It's really interesting to me that Mobley is utterly losing his shit and Trenton is like problem solving the situation like she intends to survive. I thought it was interesting and like a very Mr. Robot decision for them to use uh, like numeric bike locks to bind their hands. It reminded me of like every escape room I've ever been in <laughs> trying to figure out that code. How did she get out of it? Did she end up using the code? Because I didn't think that she did. I thought she did end up cracking it, or she wriggles out. Either way, she gets free. Mobley does nothing. Yeah, so now it's really all up to Trenton to save himself. And of course, there's a, there's an obstacle in her path, <laughs> because Trenton, like me until I was 32, does not know how to drive a car. I'm 25 and currently not able to drive, so I understand as well. Well, you're in the city, so you didn't have to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had to take the subway like these guys. You weren't kidding, though, about there being an obstacle in her path. So I love this next scene. And this is part of where I was saying, you know, we really do get some nice moments with these characters because Trenton kind of clambers up behind the wheel and she is going to bolt. Like she's like, I was going to say driving as if her life depended on it, but I suppose that uh, it does actually. Yeah, this is like the most appropriate time that you could use that phrase. It did remind me of uh, a scene, one of my very favorite scenes actually in The Handmaid's Tale. Really good scene. If folks, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, do you want to talk about it? You can do it. I don't remember the name. So um, Emily, or Avglen, um, so she's a handmaid. Remember, in that dystopian universe, women are not allowed to drive cars. And so one day, she's out and she sees an opportunity to steal the oppressor's car. And there's like 30 seconds where she's just driving. And you know she's going to get caught and you know horrible things are going to happen to her. But it's so glorious that she has like this one brief moment of liberty. It's beautiful. And so Trenton drives like Ovglen, like just like floors it. Except, and it works out much in the same way. 
Yeah, you know how I was saying that in the last episode it had kind of like a Hollywood ending with music and stuff that would lead you to believe that things were okay, and then it just goes to shit like uh, in the blink of an eye? I really thought that they were going to get away at this point. I did too, until she drives that caddy right into like a boulder and they're cooked. Whoever writes the dialogue for Leon is a genius. Like It's fantastic. Hey, did we talk about the dead man switch? That's probably an important detail we should go into. No, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that's probably the most important thing in this scene. So I feel like it's something that we shouldn't overlook. <laughs> Mobley speculates that the reason the Dark Army has come after them is because Trenton sent in some kind of email to the FBI. He says that she didn't actually do that, but she has prepared a dead man switch to send the email out to somebody who she trusts, who I figure must be Darlene. Do you have, do you have any ideas? I don't. I admit my great curiosity about this scene is who is Trenton's trusted person. Yeah. So now that that's out of the way, uh, we can find out that Leon ends up catching up to them because they crash the car. He says that's no way to treat a caddy. Yeah, that's a nice quote. I marked that down. I also like that he basically has like one emotional plane. Like he's still super chill, (laughs) even though his captives just tried to escape and destroyed his car. I can't really imagine him not being chill. Yeah, like, I don't know what would have to happen. We don't get to see that in this episode. Like, it's it's that one note. Well, actually, I don't know how chill it is for him to make them dig the graves for their friends. That's probably not very chill. He's very chill through it. Yeah, yeah, I guess you can have, like, a chill affect while doing something that's inherently unchill. Yeah, that well, because everything he does in this is inherently unchill. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to affect him much. We should make that the episode description. Inherently unchill. <laughs> that's actually my personality type. <laughs> Krista initially pushes back on Mr. Robot and expresses some disbelief about his involvement or Elliot's involvement in the 5-9 hack and the subsequent E-Corp building explosions. The evidence that Mr. Robot was able to give her, though, ended up convincing her and changing her mind. Enough to call her lawyer. Yeah, so I guess she's thinking about turning him in just because of the scale of this massive attack. But like the lawyer says, it would be illegal for her to do that. Because she is bound by confidentiality. But you can tell just... And Gloria Rubin also has a really great performance in this episode. Like, she believes him. She really believes him. Here's a question I have. Do you think that she told her lawyer what Elliot did? Is that something she can do? Well, she could do it because that that is also protected by confidentiality, right? That's what I thought. But that gave me this, like, evil master plan. Where why can't you just, like, daisy chain a bunch of lawyers who all have confidentiality agreements? <laughs> Because, I mean, now that lawyer can go talk to his lawyer and so on and so forth. I think you can do that, can you? I don't see what would prevent it. Okay. Startup idea. He does know the uh, specifics, though, because remember, he pushes back on her and says, hey, do you know how many, like, like, weirdos out there are calling in and saying they did it? You know, how do you know this guy isn't just making it up? He says she's got a feeling, basically. She says that she knows him. Yes. And so, I mean, and we know, of course, that she's right. Um, but I think she's sufficiently convinced by the lawyer to keep quiet. You know, it seems like every time there's a character on the show who's sort of, like, suspicious but indecisive, they actually seem to be correct. (laughs) Yeah, like, they should really trust their guts more. (laughs) Let's go back to uh, our poor broken Angela at her apartment. And they start this, there's, like, a real dramatic close-up of her eye. It's very creepy. I don't know. See the reflection of the TV on it, right? Yeah. I don't know if that scene is supposed to be a reference to something, but it was very different in style from the rest of the show. Yeah, it has a lot of like uh, 
quick repeated shots in it, I thought. Darlene has returned to the apartment. Um, Angela is still counting the dead. And what's really disturbing is she's just watching and rewinding the footage of this one building collapsing. Apparently that video is from a controlled demolition that was uploaded onto YouTube and they just like pulled off some random video. Really? Yeah. Did this scene also prove a theory of yours? Yes. Did you remember in that episode where they were uh, playing chess for control over Elliot's consciousness? And after that, when they're talking about the utopian future ahead of them, they're imagining the buildings fall down while they're eating dinner in the alley. Yes, I do remember that scene. I thought that that was like a cinematic reference to the climax of Fight Club, which the show makes all kinds of references to, because there's a shot of buildings falling down in a very similar way in that movie. I actually, uh, I had a moment where I thought, oh, is this whole series just been written to act out the Tears for Fears song that's featured in season two, Everybody Wants to Rule the World? Like, is that the synopsis of this whole show? Because there's a scene in it about how, or sorry, there's a verse in it about buildings coming down. Yeah, and specifically holding hands, which is what Darlene and Angela do here. This is so sad because Angela is just mumbling things over and over everything will be fine they all came back look they're all fine even though we all know this is complete this is the exact opposite of fine and Darlene I think sees how how just disturbed she is I also wonder if this is Angela protecting herself from the realization that she's been totally duped and manipulated into carrying out this horrible act if she realizes there's no time machine and no rewind button and no reset and now she's complicit in the deaths of what we learn are now over 4,000 people. I'm still not 100% convinced if the Angela time rewind thing is is gonna happen or not. Like I think that in this episode they kind of um, try and show you that it's something that people just use to manipulate Angela but I'm still not exactly sure if that's the case or not. That would actually be a really excellent and classic Mr. Robot style misdirect if they kind of lead the viewer to think that's all called off. And then, of course, it comes back at us in, say, the season finale. Yeah, the reason I think that it must um, still be White Rose's master plan is that when they are talking to Dom at the at the reception in China, when they're presenting as Minister Zhang and showing them the dresses in their closet, they're already talking about alternate universes and stuff at that point in a, a storyline that doesn't really involve Angela at all. So it seems like that's kind of more core to the White Rose character than to the Angela character. Oh, okay. I like that. I like that. Because I am very curious about what they established with White Rose there. And we don't get to see White Rose a lot lately. So I really would like some more White Rose in this season. So now we take a trip to Irving's service center and we get to see what his day job is like. I somehow never caught on that he actually owns the service center and that I had no idea he could actually work on cars. I thought he sold cars. Oh, hey, that's right. Because he's under a car Yeah. when Mr. Robot approaches him. You know, this is unrelated, but do you get like the same extreme anxiety you get when you see people under cars like that that I do? That it's going to collapse on them at any second? They're going to yeah. die? Yes. Yeah, terrifying. Yeah. Like that was the most anxiety-inducing part of this episode for me. <laughs> the other part that really induces anxiety for me is, so Mr. Robot is not thinking straight. Like he's alone and irate and he goes to confront a dark army fixer in the middle of nowhere like what is he thinking it's very foolish and of course it plays out exactly how you think it's gonna play out because two big foot soldiers in dark army masks come up behind him and knock him completely unconscious it must really sucks you need to wear those masks all the time if they're anything like the f society mask they're super uncomfortable 
So you're just talking about how it would be nice for us to get a few more white rose scenes. And I think that now we take another trip back to Mar-a-Lago. Is it Mar-a-Lago? It's Mar-a-Lago. I want to know if it's really bathed in that tacky flamingo pink light at all times. I could believe it. Absolutely. It's just so weird. So this is a scene. We don't get white rose, but we get Zhang and I'll take it because Zhang is. I don't know why I enjoy his brutality to Price so much. And they're really leveling it up in this scene. Well, because this is like a real rupture in the frenemy relationship they have, I think. And Zhang is at first kind of trying to tell him to cool it because nothing creates profit like a global conflict. Yeah, they say that E-Corp is too big to fail and that everything will end up being okay for them. This really reminded me, I know it's been some years since I've read the book, but if any of you read Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine. Was that years? I feel like I had just listened to a podcast about that earlier. I, well, I think the idea is still very much in play because this is the idea about when governments either create or mismanage some kind of crisis and it allows them to usher in a whole host of neoliberal policies because everyone is so distracted just trying to survive. They almost don't notice in a way. That reminds me of that statistic that we quoted in a previous episode about how the United States has been at war for like 95% of its existence. Exactly. So there's lots to take advantage of, right? <laughs> so, uh, and I mean, I've obviously wildly paraphrased that. You should probably read the whole book to get a better understanding. But I think Zhang thinks they've given effective cover to what they both wanted to do because China has in fact signed the economic accord. So eCoin is now the standard. But my question to you is, so now that eCorp has had so many facilities blown up, who's going to trust that currency or them anymore maybe that's something that these two characters realize as well well it's interesting because Zhang says that sympathy is actually going to lift the value of it so I don't I don't know if he genuinely thinks that's how it'll play out but to me I think that would further the feeling of instability and like there's no choice to go along with things like accepting cryptocurrency as the common currency. So I have two things to say here. The first one is that there was um, like a bit of news that was going around about how Bitcoin mining now uses more electricity than several countries. I think like almost all of Africa, for example. So it uses a ridiculous amount of energy to, to mine this cryptocurrency. And I was thinking um, if eCoin were to become the world currency and there was to be some kind of need to mine a lot of eCoin, might somebody be inclined to like build a supercomputer or something like that? And might that be, in fact, what they're doing at this new plant they're building in the Congo to replace the sludge plant? Yeah, so that's like another kind of pet theory I have, that White Rose is okay with eCoin becoming a global currency because their master plan is kind of to dominate it themselves. I'm sure they have every thought of dominating it themselves. Like <laughs> I can't even see them giving Price a crumb at this point. So this is where they do... Probably the one thing that I've disliked in this show, and I wonder what you think. I don't care for the flashback scenes, the way they do this. I guess that they did it um, like because it happened so, so long ago. It was like an entire season ago. And in particular with um, the scene where they're in the hotel, whatever, where are they? At that party? Yeah, the party. I thought... That was Price's house. Am I bananas for no, thinking that? No, I, I think you're right, and I'm totally wrong. But I'm misremembering it, and that's probably why they had the flashback. But um, that was like a post credit scene, so I think it's also possible that people haven't seen it at all. Oh, maybe. I think it does serve a utility, because you're right, it happened a long time ago. It just seemed out of format to it me. It was, yeah. I noticed that, too. The other thing is, I mean, Mr. Robot tends to be a smart and obsessive fans show, if I may say so. <laughs> so I think people who are following kind of know this stuff. 
one thing I thought was interesting, they talk about Zhang really makes a point of saying we were listening to a woman playing a liar. And I have uh, I have a theory that one of the writers perhaps took the same classics courses that I took <laughs> because um, the only famous reference I could think of to the liar is that Orpheus plays a liar. This is in the Odyssey uh, when they're sailing with the Argonauts and the sound of it distracts them from hearing the sirens call. And the sirens, remember, are like women in the sea who can lure them out to their death. Wow. So the liar is kind of protective, but it also obscures a very real threat. So I thought, okay, maybe that's maybe that's a reference to the Odyssey. I could definitely believe it. And of course, at that time, they make the reference to uh, Nero. Yes, and there's another reference to Nero, I believe, later in the episode. So yeah, I truly think there's some excellent uh, classicist on the writing staff. And I see you. That's all I want to say. <laughs> so the reason they use those flashbacks is to kind of reveal White Rose's plan here, which was that Price was tasked with manipulating Angela to drop the lawsuit that she isn't working on. But he wasn't successful in doing that. You had one job, Philip. <laughs> and so, of course, that's when White Rose steps in and gets her full belief. And, of course, that lawsuit all went away, right? Yeah, this definitely gives me the impression that um, Angela's just being played the way that White Rose presents this. This also answered a question for me because I wasn't sure if Price, in fact, knew that Jung and White Rose were the same. I guess they do. I guess do they think? do. Well, I think... That if he didn't before, he knows now because Zheng uses the very same wording when he talks about the death of the former CEO of E-Corp. So I think if he didn't know before, he sure knows now. I gotcha. So speaking of CEO, this is how it's revealed that White Rose had planned to install Price from the beginning. So you were saying that they kind of have a, a frenemy relationship that becomes a little more strained here. But that showed me that the relationship has actually existed for a lot longer than we'd thought. Because that could perhaps go back to the beginning of Price's career. Exactly. And now we're at the end of Price's career because he's asked to pick his own replacements, which must be a little demoralizing. Well, and he really Tyrells it up <laughs> uh, because he's swearing and yelling in the middle of Mar-a-Lago. And everyone is watching them, but nobody does shit. <laughs> you know, the way you said Tyrelling reminded me of the scene where Price fires Tyrell. I bet that if you were to pay closer attention to it, there would probably be a lot of deliberate parallels. Oh, yeah, because Price is really getting the axe here. Yep. I find this an interesting, like, it's a really interesting bystander effect moment. I just can't just imagine. Nobody cares. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um, there are a couple of choice Zhang quotes because Price is, you know, basically what was this all for? He says, well, I had the opportunity to teach you a lesson. And, but the line that really sticks out is... You know, when he is asked why he's done all of this, all the explosions, all the deaths, he says, because I had to ask you twice. Yeah, B.D. Wong is going to win some awards this year. Uh, B.D. Wong is so good. So good. Especially, I, I I don't know what it is about that character where it's like, I just, maybe I like watching Price get his comeuppance because that's what this moment is. So you got Mr. Robot in the car here having a nap, I guess. He lost his hat and glasses. And I feel like if you're a glasses wearer, that probably uh, sucks. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Scooby-Doo. You know what I'm talking about? No. I can't say anything without my glasses. Oh. <laughs> Was it the curator? That's all I know. That's <laughs> Scooby-Doo. <laughs> uh, he gets dragged out of the car. Irving's there. And they're overlooking like a fancy, bougie yacht party of some kind. So how did they actually get here? Did they like knock him out and bring him here or what? I assume so. Because they hit him over the head and then he's getting dragged out of the car. Yeah, that makes sense. So he's sort of just, he being Irving... Irving is basically just taunting Mr. Robot at this point. You mentioned uh, another reference to Nero earlier. And so on the yacht party, you can hear there's a fiddle playing. So it's the 
you know, it's that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Yeah, definitely a lot of symbolism there. It's so interesting because Irving is really, I thought they were going to, I guess he's more valuable alive. I guess I never really thought they were going to kill him. Irving? Elliot slash Mr. Robot. He's presenting as Mr. Robot. Oh, yeah. Well, no, maybe they have something something else planned for him down the road. Irving's on like a mission to crush his spirit, though, because he really drops the hammer. Like he said, you know, your mistake was thinking this was your plan. Your revolution was bought and paid for by people like that, the people on the yacht. Sure, it's a sad episode. This is so sad. And uh, and we're not even at like the sad part yet. <laughs> no, this this is just a like, let's see what depths we can plunge into. <laughs> this is just like 2017. Like the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. You know? um, Irving also says you can't change this no matter how hard you try. This is the end result. Uh, Irving's there to do a pretty gross cleanup job. So I don't know if he's exclusively a dark army cleaner. But he's there to um, pick up the body of uh, someone he describes as the dead mistress of a senator. Nasty. Yeah, pretty brutal. Uh, it's very that's a very Kennedy Ted Kennedy reference. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, because he was. Uh, they found um, a dead sex worker in his car. Jesus. It was a scandal, but it was all eventually covered up. So you know. You know, nowadays, like nobody would be bad an eye if that happens. <laughs> How sad! What a sad. <laughs> world this show and we inhabit okay so now let's move into the saddest part of this uh 45 minute long saga of sorrow (laughs) that's a great term for it so we're back with leon yes and so by the time he gets back with trenton and mobley they go back to their apartment i believe it's their apartment yeah i thought so yeah and the dark army seems to be setting up camp there they're carrying stuff in there it's all foot soldiers and masks Never a good thing? Yeah, no, it's never a good thing. Leon says goodbye to them, and that makes them fearful. Yeah, Leon passes them over to um, White Rose's assistant, whose name you told me was Grants. And at this point, uh, Leon's sort of out of the question. I think this is kind of, Leon doesn't really show it, but it's kind of sad, because he's said through the scenes in the desert, he's developed a bit of an affection for the two of them, and they have this kind of George Elaine vibe. and. Yeah. And so he says he hopes that they'll be kind to them, but his job is done. So he's out of the picture. I don't know if that means he's out of the series. Probably not. I th- Probably not. I think he has to. Yeah, I think so too. Although it might be the case like with Trenton and Mobley, he doesn't pop up until like one episode in season four where he dies. Yeah, maybe. So um, interspersed with that, there's a scene where um, Trenton and Mobley's boss is sitting outside of a restaurant. Oh, yeah. Apparently, that's a real restaurant. I saw someone tweet that. That's cool. That it's like their favorite restaurant. Um, And so they're watching like a Spanish newscast and he recognizes them immediately and he's questioning himself whether he should turn them in. So they have put out a bolo, which I uh, Googled earlier in this podcast to learn that it means be on the lookout uh, of their pictures. Right. And if, I don't know if we mentioned this, but they uh, it, it was Tyrell who identified Trenton and Mobley. Right. And that was confirmed by Nuri that they were the two. Oh, yeah. We did mention that. So so there's a little cutaway there after the goodbye. And then we see that um, Trenton and Mobley are taken by Grant to the garage where they have two computer terminals set up. They're so far set up that they basically already have malware loaded on them. And it's not really the case that they're trying to um, coerce them to write some malware for them or anything like that. In fact, they're very confused about what's going on. 
Well, and I think this is where, so Mobley, again, because he's very overwhelmed, he just keeps pleading for their lives, where Trenton is trying to work the situation. And so she's tried to make a pitch, hey, maybe you could use our skills. You know, maybe there's something we could do for you. But I think once she sees how far along in the exploit they are, she realizes, like, I think something in her knows that there's only really one use for them now. (laughs) The way you phrased that sentence, I thought you were going to be like, something in her nose was itchy. (laughs) (laughs) Probably also that because she's terrified and who knows what happens. What they see is that the Dark Army has already created an exploit that's designed to take over air traffic control systems at major American airports, Chicago, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. So at this point, Trenton, she asks, what do you need us for? And that I think is what breaks my heart is that they don't need them for anything. So this is where um, a foot soldier pulls out a gun, a handgun. And that's when Grant gives what I'll call the saddest pep talk of all time. (laughs) And it's interesting because earlier in the desert, Trenton asks, what if we're being recruited? I mean, in a sense, they are. Yeah. Because he says that everyone in the Dark Army is willing to die because they're all soldiers of something much bigger than themselves. I have a question about what that ultimate goal is and how all of these people have been radicalized in this way to support that goal, even to the extent of giving their own lives. It definitely plays into that parallel universe hypothesis going on. And I wonder if they all believe that, if it's like, oh, you know, there'll be pot, what is it, cherry pie in the sky when you (laughs) die? Like, I wonder if that's kind of the bill of goods they've been sold. Because Grant, I don't think, I can't tell if he cares for them. Like, I can't tell if he's trying to give them some peace by saying, you know, there's virtue in self-sacrifice and there's no greater gift one can offer the cause than everything. I don't get the impression that he was trying to, like, ease their minds or anything like that. And when I think about it that way, I'm not sure why he's bothering to talk to them at all. He's kind of doing just a bit of supervillain monologuing, as they often do. Maybe that's just it. Because remember, he's been trying to rise in his authority and scope for several episodes now. So you can see that finally he's been entrusted with a much more important task. So this also, I think, shows the ascendancy of that character and where, I mean, they're getting some of what they want now. And unfortunately, one thing they have to do is particularly brutal because he tells them that they are only there to tell a story and that is their purpose. Now, of course, this has been intercut in the storytelling in the show with scenes of the FBI preparing to raid this location and they're raiding it because of the the bolo basically right like they're trying to bring them in well and because this is the location that's been reported to them by tyrell so of course this has all been prearranged behind the scenes now one thing that's interesting here you caught that even though the scenes are intercut the timing isn't in sync oh yeah because you can see that in the um the earlier scenes there there's sun shining in through the windows but of course, the FBI scenes take place like through night vision goggles. But I didn't catch that. I, I couldn't take credit for it. Oh, no. Okay. So some other observant viewer out there has caught that. And we thank you for that. It also makes sense to me because so the FBI does, they enter the house. And you can see that the Dark Army has had time to do a little bit of window dressing because there's an Iranian flag on the wall and an F Society flag, and they've set up like a video camera and an F Society mask. So they've really tried to build the story that that recent video has come from them and this new exploit, which of course the FBI is going to discover immediately upon entering, was the work of these two nefarious hackers who did the E-Corp explosions who did 5-9. 
Yeah, so this clues back into uh, a prior episode where White Rose was talking to Frank Cody about trying to um, find a claim that F Society originated in Iran. And it's still not exactly clear where they're going with that, but this definitely furthers that development. When we were talking offline, we were saying, hey, remember way back in the series when we thought, isn't it nice that they have like a diverse set of characters but they don't make it a plot point in a gratuitous way. Yeah, and then they, they kind of do here. I didn't like that that much. Well, and I think the geopolitics of it are kind of ramping up, like especially when we talk about like Congo is going to become more present uh, to the story in the future as the plant gets relocated. And of course, there's a lot of complicated geopolitics that revolve around that region and mineral extraction. So, you know, the this kind of now presented as Iranian terror plot kind of ramps all of that up. And maybe that builds into some of the media fear mongering and other things that are also very present. Totally. Now, the final scene, probably the quietest scene in this whole episode. There's a lot of music throughout it, but not when we see Dom who is totally crushed by this revelation back at the FBI headquarters. The revelation that they weren't able to bring in Trenton and Mobley? Well, they weren't able to bring them in alive because the FBI just recovers their two dead bodies out of the garage. So sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. I really like those characters. Yeah, me too. And they've kind of like been around from the beginning. So I was hoping they'd be in it for the long haul. Well, especially too, I think we get a glimmer of hope when we see them, you know, out at working at their diner jobs you know that they're gonna they're gonna have some role in the future of the show but there's something i want to say about that actually but i i want to wait until we're done with the dumb stuff oh yeah okay all right let's come back to it so the last scene it's so dom goes back into that um five nine hack control room remember she's got this like what's that kind of diagram called mind map that's what that mayor calls it yeah, mind map. Of, um, you know what I'm talking about? No, tell me about it. It was this mayor who made a mind map that was like in his office of other politicians and people in the area. But then people found out about it and they were super creeped out and he had to make like a public apology. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she crosses out Trenton. We learned that Trenton's birthday is actually only 1998. Yeah, it's crazy. I know. She's so young. So she's like a teenager. And also this goes to she that Mobley is like twice her age. Yeah, because Mobley's birthday is 1984. What was most disturbing to me is that Tyrell Wellick and I are born in the same year. <laughs> wow. It was disturbing to me because I had always thought that Trenton and Mobley were like, they were like a pretty good on-screen couple, I thought. I thought that too. I thought <laughs> they had that like kind of weird flirty, like nerd flirty energy about them. Even in the backseat of the car, I think that. But there is quite an age difference between them. So now I'm wondering if I misinterpreted it and it's actually more like affectionate. So what Dom's last line of the show, uh, she puts White Rose on a post-it note in the center of the board and she just says, I guess to her own imaginary friend, to no one in particular, you're actually going to get away with it. That seems to be the case because the way that this has been portrayed is that Trenton and Mobley were the, like the heads of F Society. So now they're led to believe that with them out of the picture, F Society will no longer exist. So the thing I wanted to say earlier, I want to call back to the post-credits scene in season two when Leon first comes up to uh, Frederick and Tanya, as they're called. Do you remember what it was they were talking about before Leon interrupts them? Well, they were talking about reversing the hack. Exactly. Oh, so they had to be stopped. Well, that could be part of it. But what I'm getting at is that they seem to have their own plans for reversing the hack. And I wonder, like, that's probably still going to come up somehow. 
Well, and especially because that email Trenton sent, we now know that's going to go. Yeah, exactly. And another thing we know, I mentioned this to you offline, but it is clear retrospectively that whatever somebody mentions having a dead man switch, they're going to die. Because <laughs> it's kind of like a special variant of Chekhov's gun, because if they don't die, then the dead man switch is never going to be triggered. So it has no literary significance. Oh, right. Yeah, it's useless in moving the plot forward, isn't it? Yeah. So we really should have picked it up when they mentioned that. Um, last week I did mention, so the Hollywood reporter does a weekly interview with Cora Dana from the show. And I don't know if people like having the hints that he shares repeated. Do we like that? Do we hate that? I like that. It's always kind of vague anyway. Well, it's super cryptic and vague. And so this week, uh, you know, of course they ask, you know, Hey, what's going to happen next? And what he says is we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night. So we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world. (laughs) And so some folks will know that comes from Orson Welles. Uh, That's one of the things he said after the broadcast of the War of the Worlds, which was like a fictitious news broadcast that made people think we're at war with aliens. (laughs) So I my hunch here is that the inference is that the next episode is going to tackle. Remember how a lot of the storytelling is happening through newscasts on screens in behind and around the characters in the show? I really like that. I really like that too, but I think we're going to get a bit more of a glimpse at the media manipulation, which is really, I think, what the War of the Worlds was about. So that's my hunch. We might get to see. I'd like to learn a bit more about Frank Cody. Like, what is his deal? Dave was mentioning that too. Yeah, so I I think that's where we're going. It's interesting too. He also starts this interview um, with a a line from Macbeth. So maybe that means my Macbeth uh, theory isn't totally dead yet either i don't know i don't know about that one it seems pretty dead no your, your macbeth theory was like on point wasn't it it was pretty on point um because i guess macbeth well ultimately gets destroyed and dies so yeah, we'll have not to like see a happy story. <laughs> we'll have to see uh but anyway so i think some good stuff coming our way next week and that brings us to the end of the episode thanks for listening to mr rewatch we recorded this episode from our studio in Hamilton. If you enjoyed this episode, we want to encourage you to contribute or get involved with Canada Learning Code. So at Canada Learning Code, they believe that digital skills are tools of empowerment and their goal is to ensure that all Canadians, and particularly women, girls, people with disabilities, Indigenous youth and newcomers, are given equal opportunity to build our future. You can learn more about them at canadalearningcode.ca. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. Bonsoir.